Passover is now less than eight weeks away. And that may seem like a long time, two months. It's actually just slightly less than that. But traditionally, we have a flurry of individuals requesting baptism at this time. So if anyone is wanting to request baptism, now is the time to let your ministers know. Uh, don't wait around if you want to be baptized before Passover. Uh, sometimes we have people wait to the last minute. I've actually had situations where somebody asked the day before. Now, honestly, uh, if there's a busy time for a minister, that's it. And uh, he really doesn't have time in most cases to talk to you about baptism. So especially if you've been around a while, you need to talk to him a little bit earlier. But my questions for you today are, are you ready for baptism? Are you ready for baptism? And for the rest of you, which is most of you who are here, uh, I don't want you to go to sleep, so I have a question for you. And that is, do you remember why you were baptized? And that might sound like a simple question, but sometimes we need to be reminded of why we were baptized or why we want to be baptized. Baptism is the most important decision of your life. We say that all the time, but I wonder if people really believe that that is the case. A lot of times people think that, well, the most important decision of life is who you marry. But we must remember that marriage is temporary. Uh, we hope it is till one dies or the other, till death do his part. But at the very least, it's, uh, it's temporary. You might be married for 50 or 60. I've known one or two couples that managed to make 70 years. That's a long time. Humanly speaking, however, that's still temporary. And the older we get, the more we realize how temporary life is. When you're 16, it seems like life goes on forever. But when you get a little bit older, uh, 60 or 70 years of age, you realize just how short it is. And funny things happen. Your mind is still the same. At least we hope it is if you're 70 years of age, but little problems become big problems a lot more quickly. And we have this flu epidemic, and it seems to be taking the lives of the, the very young or older people. And what might have just been something that you would throw off at a younger age isn't always so easy to throw off sometimes when you get older. So life is temporary. And marriage is temporary. But baptism deals with eternal life. It's a decision that can lead to eternal life, life forever. Baptism is an outward expression of an inward intent. What we do outwardly, getting in the water, being dunked, having a prayer said over you, having hands laid upon you, that's all expressing what is inside what you understand, what you believe inside. It's making a decision, and it's a commitment. We see some evangelists talk about making a decision for Christ. Well, it is a decision, but it's also a commitment. And actions must follow that decision and commitment. It has to do with how we live the re remainder of our lives. Baptism has implications for eternity. Now, let's notice what we might look at as a starting point considering baptism. 
In Luke, the 14th chapter, we often read this. In fact, I think we probably always do. At least that is the tradition of the church to read Luke 14, a portion of it. And I'd like to start back a little ways here where he said in verse 16, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many, and sent his servants at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. This is an analogy, a metaphor for the marriage supper of the Lamb, referring to those that are going to be resurrected at Christ's return or born into the family of God at that time. There are those who are given an invitation. We know elsewhere that many are called, but few are chosen. And we see that here. But they all, with one accord, began to make excuses. The first one said, I bought a piece of ground and I must go and see to it. I ask you to have me excuse. So, that's one excuse that somebody might have. They bought a new piece of ground. They bought a new home. They've got, they're busy. They're taking care of it. Maybe they're building a home itself. And they say, well, I, I just don't have time for it right now. And another said, verse 19, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. I have a new job. I have a new piece of equipment. So, yes, I'd like to come to the supper, but I'm just too busy at the moment. Still another said, verse 20, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So he talks about new jobs, you might say, a new wife, family circumstances, whatever it might be. He gives three examples here. So that servant came and reported these things to the master. And notice that the master of the house being angry. When God offers us something, when he gives us an opportunity for uh, life, for being in his family, for being in the first resurrection, and we turn it down, that doesn't please our creator. And he said to the servant, go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. The ones that were originally invited of course, it's, there's a, a metaphor here of, of Israel, or the Jews specifically. And so God is going to fill the seats of the marriage supper. And the servant said, Master is done as you commanded, and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be, full, may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men... Notice, none of those who are invited shall taste my supper. Now, we don't know if that means that they're not going to be in the kingdom of God, but they're certainly not going to be in the first resurrection. They're not going to have an opportunity to sit at Jesus' feet or at the same table and be a part of the bride of Christ. These are individuals who are losing out, maybe not on in eternal life. That's something that we don't absolutely know, but they certainly are going to miss out on the first resurrection. And Christ is going to be angry with those individuals whom he offered or his father offered an opportunity for. And how often we see that. I've heard people say, well, I just don't have time to study. And there are, I suppose, many different reasons. Sometimes we have people who attend services for years, literally years. 
And for all practical purposes, they're a part of the church, but they never take the step of being baptized. And we'll see a little bit more of the purpose for this. I remember an individual many, many years ago. He's not a part of the living church of God as far as I know. But he'd gone through Ambassador College, which most of the students, by the time they were seniors, were baptized. But he was about 26 years of age at the time. And he finally asked to be baptized. And as he told me, he said, I've been doing all the right things. I've been keeping the Sabbath. I've been paying my tithes. I've been avoiding unclean meats. I've been doing everything that all the rest of the members are doing. But he said, if I die or Christ comes back, it's all for nothing. He finally woke up to realize he was doing all those things really to no end or purpose. Now, uh, it's certainly a better life if you're obeying God. But nevertheless, when it comes to eternal life, he realized that he was missing out on something. And there are people like that. Sometimes we know why they wait. Sometimes we don't. But I've known people that have been in the church, been attending church for literally decades. But they never come to the place of making that decision. Sometimes it's because people pressure them. And there's a certain stubbornness. Well, uh, my husband is pressuring me, so I'm not going to do it. And that's probably good that you don't do it for that reason. At some point you have to say, wait a minute, this is between God and me. And I have to decide what is best for me, not what's best for my husband, not what's best for my wife, not what's best for my my parents, all those things. Sometimes people give in and they get baptized for the wrong reason, just to satisfy somebody else, and that's not right. We go on to this part that we often read for those who are being baptized. It says, Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate, meaning love to a lesser degree, his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now it's easy to read right over that, but Jesus said he cannot be my disciple if he is not first. We must love to a lesser degree the closest relationships that we have, including our own life also. That Christ must be more important than this physical life that we're living. And I wonder how many times people read that, but they really don't get it. They really don't, because if one member of the family leaves, they often leave with them. Something was missing there in their understanding. It says, whoever does not bear his cross or his burden and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost whether he has enough to finish? Sometimes you, we don't see too many people building towers today. I suppose you've got Trump Tower and some other kinds of towers. But we see people sometimes that start houses. I know in my um, my wife's family's neighborhood, there was a house that they were building for years. And at one point, you thought they were never going to finish it. I've known people that, are, that build their own house, and they start out with a basement. And then they live there to save enough money so they can build the upper structure. Sometimes they never get to the upper structure. They only go so far. 
And so he says here that we should, after they've laid the foundation, is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Especially in a warfare that is not so technical as we have today, so much technology, but when it has to do with swords and clubs and so forth, 10,000 would have a hard time going against 20,000. He says, or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. We must be willing to forsake everything. There is nothing that should be more precious to us than Christ in following his ways. And so he tells us we're to, to count the cost. We need to count the cost, what we're going to do. Has he who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is what we call counting the cost. Now, let's be honest with ourselves. When we read those verses, we know what we want to do, don't we? But can any of us say, I know what I will do? Peter thought he knew what he would do. But when the time came and they were threatened, he took off and ran. Now, he repented of that. And eventually, as we understand from history, as well as even the scriptures, he was martyred. He didn't run then. So we we can't say what we will always do, but we, at least in our minds at the time of baptism, and each day as we get up, we have to have that commitment that I'm going to put Christ above all else. That's not easy to do, but it's something that we must be prepared to do. In Revelation, the 12th chapter, Revelation 12, and verse 11, we'll just read the the one verse there. But it's talking about the servants of God, the saints of God. In verse 11, it says, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. It's talking about people who yet in the future are going to be willing to lay down their lives for Christ. Of course, this applies to the past, but it's leading right into the very future when, um, well, actually before that, Satan is cast to the earth, talking about time yet in the future, and it says they did not love their lives unto death. They put God first, Christ first. Are we willing to do that? Do we understand that's the commitment that we made or that we will make and that we must live with that commitment? And every day when we get up, do we understand the commitment that we're making to God? In Deuteronomy, the 13th chapter, I find rather interesting. The Bible, as Dr. Meredith has always said, is the mind of God. It's how God thinks. And here in Deuteronomy, the 13th chapter, In verse 6, Deuteronomy 13, verse 6, it says, If your brother, the son of your mother, your son or your daughter, the wife of your bosom, or your friend, who is as your own soul, secretly entices you, saying, Let us go and serve other gods 
which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers, of the gods of the people which are all around you, says near to you or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. Verse 8, you shall not consent to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him or conceal him, but you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. And you shall stone him with stones until he dies, because he sought to entice you away from the eternal your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Now, I think we all understand this was under the old covenant. This had to do with the nation of Israel, and we don't go out and we don't, Start stoning someone or killing them. I think we all know that. But I have to clarify that so nobody misunderstands it. Uh, it's uh, In some places in this world, to read that scripture, I don't know if we qualify it will make a difference in Canada, that would be considered hate speech. That's, that's been proven in court. Not this particular scripture, but another one similar to it. So we need to understand that this is not what we are are espousing, that we, we take somebody out and kill them. But I think it tells us something about the mind of God. For example, when the church, the, the living, uh, not living, but the worldwide church of God was going into apostasy, I know that there were uh, some ministers who felt, oh, I, I can't say anything, I can't do anything, and here are the sheep being slaughtered with wrong ideas, and they're just standing up on the top of the hill saying, well, I can't say anything. I can't do anything. Uh, is that the mind of God? I understand that we should not take a paycheck from someplace that we, uh, and then badmouth them or whatever. But I know I was terribly conflicted during that time what to do. But I realized that I had to say something, not badmouth the individuals, but the ideas. And just point out simply, actually I had four questions when I left. You know, why such massive changes? Actually, three questions. Where are they headed and what should we do? And I think that there comes a time when we all have to stand up. And we have to say, I'm not going to sell myself for a paycheck. I think I, well, I know I used a different word. And some people were offended by that. But I know I said, I will not prostitute myself for a paycheck, which means to sell yourself. And I think that there's a time when even in families we have to separate truth from error. And when we find somebody in the congregation, as an example, and we're not asking everybody to be tattletales or whatever, but if you have somebody who's spreading heresy and you say, oh, I can't, I can't go against my buddy. I just keep my mouth shut. He's as a wolf gobbling people up. And we have this sometimes. Somebody brings in a heresy, and they talk privately with people. I don't know of that happening here, so please understand. I'm not talking about anybody here. At least I hope I'm not. But I've known of those situations. And they take away a half dozen or a dozen people, and sometimes a few more. We should not stand back and keep silent in those situations. We need to stand up for the truth. And where is our loyalty? Is it with God or is it with my friend? There comes a time when you have to make choices. In 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, 1 Corinthians 5, 
We're familiar with this, and we'll probably read a little bit of this chapter during the Days of Unleavened Bread coming up. But we know that there was an individual that was committing sexual immorality. And the problem was that as you allow a little bit here, it spreads to others. People are more emboldened to do those things. Verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So we're not here to change the world. But within the church of God, as he points out here, but now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Now, we have some churches of God out here who uh, will disfellowship us, as it were, because we're not with them. But talking here about immorality is not talking about the fact that we might have a somewhat different view on the Sabbath or how to keep the Sabbath or whatever. It's, uh, you know, we, we recognize, well, as some look at us, we're all Laodiceans and they're Philadelphians, so Philadelphians can't fellowship with Laodiceans, even if it's your own family member. What a perversion of Scripture that is. There were seven churches in Asia Minor. Can you imagine Philadelphia and Laodicea, which were at the opposite ends of the valley, that Paul is saying that, boy, if you're at one end, and you are mostly, because it wasn't everybody in the congregation, but this was the attitude in one congregation, you, you, you can't fellowship with those people over there. How foolish they're all the church of God. Now, we do need to understand that there are differences out here, and we're not all the same. But to say that one should never... Uh, you know, sit down with somebody and have a meal with somebody because they're of a different group. I don't think we should just be going back and forth in this church and that church and be a, uh, uh, this one fellow described it. He was in the, with the Highway Church of God or the, uh, something like that. Uh, one week he'd go one place, one week he'd go another place. That's confusion. And it certainly doesn't help brand new people who don't understand all the history. And so forth. But we're just talking about the fact that you can't even be civil to someone who might be of a different group. I think we need to know why we're here and be strong in why we're here and not go back and forth into different festival sites and that sort of thing. I think that that shows a lack of understanding. But at the same time, the point is that it's talking about the world here in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. That we're to forsake, well, we're, we're, we're not to go out of the, uh, stop fellowshipping with anybody in the world. In other words, your neighbors, you can be friends with them even if they have a few problems. But as far as the church goes, if someone is going to be sexually immoral or an idolater or covetous or whatever, then he says those individuals, if it's you know, a real extreme case there, you put them out. The point I'm trying to make here is that we have to decide where our loyalties are. And Christ says you must put him first above all else. In Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11, 
and verse 36. Here we read of the cost of discipleship for some people. It says, still others had trials, trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two. I think there's some tradition that Isaiah was sawn in two. I think there's some tradition on that. We don't know for sure who it's talking about, but it does say here that some were sawn in two. Now, I'm not sure exactly whether that's talking about this way or this way. Uh, It doesn't sound like anything that I'd want to have happen to me. And I'm sure you feel the same way. That's something that probably all of us in this room could all agree upon, whether we're baptized or not. We all agree that that would not be very pleasant. They were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. They didn't always have nice, comfortable homes. Of whom the world was not worthy, they wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. Now, that's all almost poetically poetic sounding there. We can read that, and there's a certain uh, rhythm to it all. And if we're not careful, we can, we can love the words and miss the meaning. These were real things that happened to real people. Verse 39, all, and all these having obtained a good testimony through faith did not receive the promise. So they did not inherit the promise in this physical life. But they went about destitute, in sheepskin and goatskins, Tormented, afflicted in various ways. Some were stoned, some were sawn in two. We see that. But this is the calling that God has given to us, that we must be willing, whatever he requires of us. We don't know what he will require of us. Sometimes it's putting God before a mate. I've known people who have been willing to do that. I think you probably have too. But there are others who will put their mate before God. And when we were baptized, we said that we are putting it all on the line. This is the way that we are going. This is the cost of discipleship. Are you ready to make this kind of a commitment? And for those already baptized, was this your decision at baptism, and is it still your decision? Are you putting Christ above all else? So where do we start? Where do we start with all this? Well, do you really deeply know the God of the Bible? Do you really know God? I think that's the first place. That's where I like to start when I'm counseling someone for baptism. Do you really know that God exists? Notice over in Hebrews, the 11th chapter, in verse 6. It says, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So you must first of all know that God exists and know that he will reward those who diligently seek him, not passively, but diligently seek him. In the first verse, 
of Hebrews 11. Is faith, it says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. Now, I explained this in a previous sermon and wrote an article about this, but I do want to emphasize it again because sometimes it takes a few times for something to sink in if you've been looking at it in a different way. But faith goes beyond physical evidence. This is not saying in verse 1 that we have evidence for our faith. It's saying that faith is the evidence of things not seen. It goes beyond physical evidence. How do we know that? Well, an example is ancient Israel. Was there ever a people who had more evidence than ancient Israel coming out of Egypt? They saw all the plagues that took place in Egypt. They watched as the Red Sea was opened up before their eyes. Just imagine looking out over a river or a large body of water and seeing it open up so that you can walk across dry land. That must have been an awesome sight. We read about a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day, day after day after day to lead them. What must have that been like? What about the fact that the firstborn were killed in Egypt who weren't protected by the blood of Christ or the blood of the Lamb, picturing what Christ would do for us? It was only the firstborn who died and all the firstborn in that house. But for those who had the blood of the Lamb, not a single one was killed. That's pretty remarkable. That's hard to explain or to explain away. What about the manna that came for 40 years, six days a week? And the sixth day always had enough for the next day. And if they saved it over any other day, it bred worms and it stank. This is, you know, you read that and, and you think, wow, if, if I could see that, if you could see any one of those miracles, you think that that would save you. But I've known some people who've been healed miraculously no explanation for it other than a gift of God, an act of God. And I can tell you, that doesn't keep people in the truth. Very many of them fall away. In fact, it seems to me that the most spectacular miracles that take place, the percentage is pretty high of those that fall away eventually. Now, if you've had some miracle, don't think that I'm saying you're going to fall away. But I'm just saying that miracles... Do not prove things for people. Faith goes beyond physical evidence. Notice Hebrews, the fourth chapter. Hebrews 4 and verse 16. That's not where I want to go. Hebrews 3. Sorry. Hebrews 3, verse 16. He says, For who, having heard, believed? I'm sorry. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? And then verse 19. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. In spite of all of those miracles, 
Now, does this mean that we have, as so many people in this world, a blind faith? Does that mean that our faith should be blind, that we simply believe something because we grew up in that type of a household? If you were Catholic, you probably believe, at least up to a certain point, if you're here, that doesn't apply. But if you were a Catholic growing up, you probably believe, as my Catholic friends did, that they were right. They didn't have the evidence. They thought they did. Those of us who are Protestants, we thought we were better than our Catholic friends. And those who grew up in an Islamic religion believe that they are right. And Buddhists probably think that they're right. And atheists, we know they believe they're right. So oftentimes, whatever your background is, that's what you believe. And a lot of times when our young people come to us to be baptized, and you ask the question, do you know that God exists? Oh, I've always believed God exists. But that's, not, that's not the right answer. Don't mean to feed you the right answers. But the point is that just because you believe it doesn't mean it's so, unless it is based on some form of evidence. Now, this doesn't do away with Hebrews, the 11th chapter, that faith goes beyond physical evidence, but at the same time, we should have some reason why we believe something. Notice, in Nehemiah, the ninth chapter, when ancient Israel came out of Egypt, they had evidence for God. They they lacked faith, but they had the evidence. The evidence was there. And God did not withhold evidence from them. God doesn't want us to believe something through blind faith. Notice Nehemiah, the ninth chapter, and verse 10. It says, You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants, and against all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted proudly against them. So you made a name for yourself as it is this day. God made a name for himself among the children of Israel. They had signs and they had wonders that they could view there. In Psalm 77th chapter, the 77th Psalm, verse 11, it says, I will remember, uh, I will remember the works of the eternal. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. So the psalmist here is saying, I'm going to remember your works of old. I will also meditate on all your work and talk of your deeds. Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary, who is so great a God as our God. You are the God who does wonders. You have declared your strength among the peoples. You have with your arm redeemed your people and the sons of Jacob and Joseph. Notice over in Romans, the first chapter. Romans 1. And I'll just read the one verse, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen 
being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. God has given us evidence everywhere of his existence. And so when we start thinking about baptism, we have to know that God exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Notice over in Psalm 139 and verse 14. Psalm 139 and verse 14. says, I will praise you, David said, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. So the starting place is to really know that God exists, not believe simply because that's what you've been taught, and you've always believed it since you were a child, but really prove it for yourself. And there are a hundred, a thousand different ways of doing that, I suppose, to help you out. Uh, Dr. Winnale wrote, uh, I think it was Dr. Winnale, either that or John O'Gwen. Which one was it? Uh, yeah, Dr. Winnale wrote, The Real God, Proofs and Promises. This may not be the most update version. But it's something that it does you well to read. It, it has more depth to it than you might realize when it says uh, a creator, there can't be a creator, um, there can't be a creation without a creator. Far more to it than that. When you start thinking about the dirt underneath your feet or the rug or whatever it is, there had to be a beginning. As we grow up, we just think it's always been there. But scientists know that it hasn't always been there. They're trying to figure out how it came about. And when you listen to their explanations, I don't know if they're right or wrong. They talk about the Big Bang or they like to call it the cosmic expansion and they point out that this is what they, they believe, at least many scientists today. And they very well could be right. That everything in the entire universe was squeezed down to something smaller than a dot at the end of the, the paragraph or the end of the sentence. It was all that small at one time. Now, I can't even imagine everything in this room, all of you, squeezed down to that small. And then expanded outward. They very well may be right. I don't know how God did it. We know he stretched out the heavens as as a curtain. But how did he do it? How did he bring it about? It's an amazing thing. Science is uh, still struggling to figure these things out. I think in the booklet, I think this is an older version. It needs to be updated. It talks about how the... Everything is spreading out, but it's slowing down. Now they're saying it's speeding up as it spreads outward. And I, I always think about that. I say, well, wait a minute. How come I can see Orion out there? How come I, can I see all the, the stars that seem very familiar if they're spreading out at the rate that they're talking about how fast it's going outward? Well, of course, that's part of, I think, our galaxy. You see, other galaxies are spreading out from it, going out further. It's all just going outward. But the galaxy that we're in, as far as I know, is hanging together. It's not just flying off out there. So that's why we see things so constantly. Anyway, that's the theory for today, that it's speeding up. We'll have to wait till tomorrow. But 
It doesn't mean that everything scientists say is bad. When we talk about the Big Bang Theory or the cosmic expansion, people that are in the church often think, oh, that's talking evolution. You know, that fact is is on our side because it's saying there was a beginning. And they have to come up with an explanation for it. So as Mr. Smith has pointed out in one of his programs or an article, they, they have multiverses. In other words, there are multiple universes, not just galaxies, but what we know is our universe is just one universe, but there are a whole lot of other universes out there. And they've got to develop those. They've got to theorize that maybe they exist with no evidence whatsoever to be able to explain, explain evolution because they realize how difficult it is for life to come into existence by chance. The odds are so, so against it, as any anyone who's really looked into it knows. The odds are staggering, way beyond any of our comprehension for it to come into being by itself. So do you know that God truly does exist? I'd say a good starting place is, and if you've read it before, go back and read this booklet. It's an important statement on the subject. Now, you must also know that the Bible is God's word. This book that you're holding in your hands is the word of God, that it comes by inspiration from God. You can look at prophecies fulfilled. How could all these things come about in the way that they have? One of my favorite ones is in Zechariah, the 14th chapter. And here we read, well, actually, you could start in the 12th chapter. Look at uh, Zechariah, the 12th chapter. And verse 2, it says, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all the nations of the earth are gathered against it. Do we see Jerusalem, first of all, in existence today? Because this was written some 2,500 years ago, plus or minus 100. I forget exactly the date on it, but 2,500 years ago. How would you like to project forward what is going to happen with Charlotte 2,500 years from now, where there would even be in existence? And furthermore, we see from the 14th chapter that Jews are there. So who's going to be inhabiting Charlotte 2,500 years in the future if it even exists? We know that this is after Christ's coming because it says here in verse 10, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one who mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. We're talking about after Christ's first coming, after his death, burial, and resurrection, these events. Then you get chapter 14. It says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. That's the time yet in the future. Day of God's wrath. And your spirit will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. Do we see Jerusalem in that state where all these nations hate it, want to destroy it, want to run the Jews into the sea? And he says, the city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity. Somewhat of an indication that it is a divided city. 
Half the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. goes on to say that the Lord will go forth and fight in that day. His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, verse 4. Verse 9, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. You read this and you see that the things it's describing in verse 4 and 5 and so forth about the Mount of Olives splitting and a river coming out from it, that hasn't happened yet. We can see the circumstances that will bring it about. So there are many different proofs that the Bible is the Word of God. I think one of the greatest proofs is that this way of life works. This way of life works. Some think God's law is burdensome. Now, it's true that the Jews added burdens to the law, but Jesus himself condemned those burdens that they added to it. God says through John that God's law is not burdensome. Notice that in 1 John, the fifth chapter, in verse 3. I think we're very familiar with it, but let's just notice it. Because all these things have implications to it. Verse 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. People talk about God's love, and that's all we need is love, but... John says this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, you know what's burdensome is a violation of God's law. God says you shall not commit adultery. Now, if you don't commit adultery, there's no penalty. If you do, there's unwanted pregnancy, There are diseases. There are destroyed relationships between husband and wife, destroyed relationships with your children. There could be embarrassment. There could be loss of of a job. Look at some of these, these politicians and others who get caught in these things and it destroys their career. Now, that's burden, burdensome. When we violate God's law, there are penalties for it. That's what the burden is. It is sin that is burdensome. Notice over in Proverbs, the fourth chapter. The problem is that as we grow up, as teenagers, we think that God is sometimes keeping us from the good things. And that mom and dad are keeping us from the good things, when in reality... God and mom and dad are keeping us from trouble, keeping us from heartache and suffering. Chapter 4 of Proverbs, beginning verse 10, Hear my son and receive my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. When young people go out drinking and driving, the consequence is often very bad. Sometimes you think you get away with it, but you've just developed the, the uh, encouragement to try it again. Nothing happened, so it must be okay. Young people take up smoking habit, and they think they're getting away with something because they don't die immediately, and it doesn't seem to affect their breathing that much, not right away. Of course, the fact that they threw up a few times and uh, had quite a cough for a little bit, they... they They'll stick with it. If we worked hard, as hard 
developing good habits, sometimes as we do it, developing bad habits, we'd, we'd do well, wouldn't we? But it says, uh, you know, people take up that habit, and someplace down the road, it has consequences, doesn't it? Same thing with marijuana and other drugs. There are people asking the question, well, if it's legal, is it okay? Well, a lot of things are legal. Working on the Sabbath is legal in this country, but is it okay? It's amazing the questions that people ask. And you begin to think, what is it that they really want? Do they really get it? Or is it passing right over their head somehow? It says, I, I have taught you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in the right paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hindered. And when you run, you will not stumble. This is what God wants us to be able to do. He wants us to be able to live this life with all the, without all the, the stumbling, the heartache, the suffering. It says, take firm hold of instruction. Do not let go. Keep her, for she is your life. Verse 14, do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the ways of evil. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they do not sleep unless they have done evil. And their sleep is taken away unless they make someone fall. Uh, fall. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. You know, there are penalties all through the book of Proverbs. It tells us things that we should not do. It tells us to seek wisdom, to seek understanding. In Galatians, the sixth chapter. Actually, Galatians 6 quotes from the book of Proverbs on this particular passage. It says, do not be deceived, verse 7. God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. So there are two choices, two ways of life. And God wants us to have the best. We also have the booklet, The Bible, Fact or Fiction. Again, this, I think this is a more update one. I just grabbed what I had in my library, but The Bible, Fact or Fiction. Another very important booklet that would do us well to read, just to be reminded of these things. It's so easy for us to forget these things. Maybe we know the, the general gist of it. Maybe we know the right answer that, yes, uh, it is fact. We know that. But it's good to be reminded of those things, isn't it? And for those who have not been baptized, who grew up in the church, you believe this is the, you know, the place you should be, but have you really proved it for yourself? Have you proved the Bible? A way of life is one proof. Fulfilled prophecy, answered prayer. Give us some other things there. The third pillar is you must know where God is working. You need to know that God exists. You need to know that the Bible is His Word, but you also need to know where God is working. And the Catholic says, well, this is where God is working. The Protestant says, this is where God is working. The Muslim thinks, this is where God is working. And if you've grown up in the Church of God, you think, this is where God is working. Have you proved it? Have you truly proved it? And those that have been around for a while, have we proved it? In 1 Timothy 3... In verse 14, 
This was in part the name of the living church of God or where it came from. Verse 14, these things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, Paul tells Timothy, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. Now, there are people who think the pillar and the ground of the truth is what I think. Not, not what me personally, but what they personally think. That's what they, they think that it, it's, that's where I get truth. That's how I prove it. So I'll get a little bit here, a little bit there. I'll read all these different people and I'll sort it out and I'll come up with my own. They don't think my own, but they think they'll sort it out on their own and they're the most confused of all people. Because nobody else believes like they do. They've gotten a little bit here, a little bit there, and they miss the whole thing. The church of the living God is a pillar and the ground of the truth. That's where the, the truth is going to be upheld and protected. What does the Bible teach? Have you ever compared, at least in your mind, with professing Christianity? We've known some very difficult times down through the years, haven't we? Those who have been around for a while. We've seen leaders who have been disloyal. We've seen the church going in a wrong direction, only be brought back. We've seen apostasy within the church. And for those who were there in the 90s, we saw the church go totally off the rail. And it's times like that that it gets very confusing, doesn't it? And you begin to wonder, what, what is all this about? You know, these three pillars have served me well through the years, and I hope that they serve you well. Do I know that God exists? I go back and I ask myself that question on my knees in prayer. Do I know God exists? And I review the proofs that I know that God exists. I don't have to prove it to anybody else, but I know that it isn't just because I believe it for the sake of believing it. It's because I know from scientific facts and otherwise that God exists. And do I know that the Bible is the word of God? Well, I've given you just a little bit, tiny bit of why I believe it's the word of God. And, I, you know, I come to the same conclusion every time. If, 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 if the foundation is right, you will come to the same conclusion every time. But sometimes it just gets so confusing out there and you wonder, well, how can this be the church when we have all these problems? Now, I don't think we have a lot of problems right now. I'm not saying that, but there, you, you just never know. There is a, a spirit being out there that's trying to destroy us. And he's going to create as much confusion, as much chaos as possible. And human beings being what we are, sometimes he gets through to somebody and they, they go off the rail. And so I, I go back. Does God exist? Is the Bible the Word of God? And then, you know, it gets pretty simple after that. Because the third pillar is, am I in the right place? And I start thinking about Catholicism. Is God working through Catholicism when you look at the whole history? And you look at the doctrines that come out of rank paganism? And you go through that, you you, you just know that that can't be where God is working. 
And, of course, you've got Revelation, the 17th chapter, that kind of explains that a little bit. It also explains about the harlot daughters. And Protestantism, which I came up through, I realized that <laughs> there's no way. Christmas, Easter, uh, even Halloween, which some celebrate, some don't. But the immortality of the soul, I know what the Bible teaches on that. Law of clean and unclean meats. That may not be the most important doctrine that the church ever had, but boy, I've proved that to myself so many different ways. All the difficult scriptures that sometimes are thrown up, I know that that's the truth, that we shouldn't eat certain things. And, you know, just go through the list, whatever your list might be, and you say, okay, where is it? I can narrow it down to the Sabbath and the Holy Days pretty easy. But does that mean that everybody that keeps the Sabbath and the Holy Days is on track? Not necessarily. Uh, Sabbath keepers, I know a lot of people when they came out of worldwide, they were just looking for Sabbath-keeping church. But, you know, one of the, probably the largest Sabbath-keeping church in the world is Trinitarian. And... They have no idea of the plan of God because they reject the holy days and come to the conclusion that for a thousand years, everything's going to be a wasteland on this earth with nobody alive. And you look at the scriptures they use and you realize they're taken out of context. In fact, Isaiah 24, verses 1 to 6, it leaves out the last words, and few men are left. So you go down the list and you begin to narrow things down. At least that's how I've always done it for myself. You may do it another way, and that, that's just fine, however you, you know, come to the right conclusions. But for me, it's sometimes just a matter of elimination, and I only I come up with one, one place. But you should be able to prove these things for yourself because there will be difficult times. There will be confusing times. In Acts, the 20th chapter... Acts 20, the Apostle Paul told the elders of Ephesus that there would be times of difficulty and confusion. In verse, he didn't say it in those words, but the the bottom line of what he was saying was was there would be that way. Verse 26, Acts 20, verse 26, it says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God. That is so important, brethren. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. These were ministers that had come from Ephesus to meet him. To shepherd the church of God. That's another proof. What It isn't the church of Luther. It isn't the church of certain method. It's the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. That sounds like difficult times, doesn't it? Therefore, watch and remember that for three years, Three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. He was passionate about it. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those 
who are sanctified, who are set apart. So he shows that there's going to be confusion from time to time, even within the church of God. We do everything we can that it's not that way, but sometimes confusion sets in. So where do you go? How do you look at it? What is the whole counsel of God? What is it? Well, as much as some people don't like to talk about it, government. There's one form of government that is God's government. <clears throat> now, you can bring out all kinds of scriptures that uh, try to portray it another way, but it can't be done. Simply cannot be done. Not to an honest person. I, I remember in Acts, I gave a sermon on government one time, and somebody said, well, what about Acts, the first chapter? Or talks casting lots, because that has been portrayed as casting their ballot. It, it just amazed me that people could believe that casting lots was, was balloting. Uh, you read anything about lots. You know, when, they, when they, the high priest took the two goats... And he cast lots over the goats, and he put one on the head of the uh, the one representing Christ and the other one, Azazel. What did he do? Okay, I vote this one will be this. I vote the other one because he was by himself. No, he was appealing to God. And as any uh, commentary will point out, point out on casting lots or Bible dictionary, there were different ways, but sometimes into their, their robe they would cast uh, little stones or something with, you know, two different uh, uh, answers. It would be very similar to us drawing straws or uh, taking an answer out of a hat. We do it that way. But it was appealing to God to give them an answer that they could not know. So when they cast lots over Matthias and the other one, Justin, was it anyway the two the two that were going to be chosen one of them to be an apostle it says they cast their lots and the lot fell on was it Matthias I never can remember Matthias thank you for nodding your head <laughs> heads plural here uh, thank you it fell on Matthias it wasn't the the eleven voting on what they wanted they cast their lots who are the there not the the eleven it was Matthias and Justin, or whoever the other fellow was, and the lot fell on the one. But that has been so abused. Government has to be a part of the whole counsel of God. Doing the work of God, doing the will of God, preaching the gospel to the world, the Ezekiel warning message, uh, those are things that we need to be doing as a church, and we are. But that must be part of the whole counsel of God. A way of life separate from worldly standards, not trying to conform ourselves to the world. And yet sometimes I've heard people say, well, you know, the world's the head of the church on this subject. Boy, that ought to be a huge red flag. It says, wait a minute. When has the church ever been ahead of, or the world ever been ahead of the church? And yet too often we move in the direction of the world, I say we, hopefully not you and me, but even within the church, sometimes people are moving the wrong direction. 
Another part of the whole counsel of God is that there are ranks in the ministry. Ephesians 4.11, first apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, etc. Do we have every one of those at all times? Uh, We don't think so. Mr. Armstrong certainly didn't think we had prophets at that time. Will there ever be a prophet in the future? Sure, probably. The two witnesses, I'd say, would be probably prophets. Uh, But right now, uh, we understand that there are ranks in the ministry. But because people are so adverse to government, they want everybody to be equal. And as uh, somebody told me one time that was a part of a a group that split off from us uh, back in the the Kansas City area, in that first year, another church started, and so some people went that direction, and then they split. Uh, As he said, they have two forms of government. The minister is in charge of the congregation, but on the ministerial level, they were all equals, because no one wanted to answer to anybody else. You know, this is part of the whole counsel of God. You can't read Ephesians 4.11 and really do away with the fact that there are different levels within the ministry. And they say, well, those are just, what, uh, functions. Well, you have to decide that. You have to look at it objectively. Tithing as a law, not just a nice principle. I remember going out on the internet, uh, the CompuServe forum, there was, uh, that shows how far back it was. I haven't been on any of these forums ever since that time, but for a period of time I was on that and I realized I couldn't sleep at night because I always checked it just before I went to bed and I'd be so angry that I couldn't sleep, so I finally had to get rid of it and ditch it. But it was amazing how many people, how many ministers were out there saying that tithing is, is a nice principle a good principle, and oh, I tithe, by the way, you know, it's the way they put it, but it's not a law of God. We need to prove these things for ourselves. You need to know why you are where you are. And I think that most of us in this room know why we are where we are. That's why we're here. That's why we're not someplace else. But we need to know those things. These three pillars, knowing that God exists and knowing that the Bible is the Word of God, And knowing where the church is will serve you well through trials, disruptions, and times of confusion. And I'll be the first to tell you, I've had to go through those pillars time and again. You can't be in the church of God for 50 years or more and not at times have to go back through it. And I'm not afraid of going back through it because I know the answer is going to be the same. But sometimes I have to remind myself. Maybe you'll have to remind yourself someday. So why should you be baptized? Some see baptism as something that you do to join the church. Uh, Some adults have come from other churches where they were baptized, and they just ask the question, well, do I need to be baptized again? Because they know that if they're going from one church that teaches baptism to another, that oftentimes they require that of them. Without a whole lot of counsel, it's just something you have to do in order to be in the church. It's an initiation. Let me try that again. An initiation rite that you go through, and that's how they see it. Sometimes when people ask about being baptized, I usually try not to give them an answer right away because a lot of times it'll be at church, and you don't want to give a quick answer. And truthfully, you can't know always 
uh, what the person's background really is, although you might suspect they need to be. But one of the things that people need to repent of when it comes to baptism is being a part of Satan's religion. Being a part of, in other words, one thing you have to repent of is of wrong religion. You might have been a drunk before. You might have been running around on your wife. You might have been smoking. You've stopped all those things, and that's repentance up to a point. But have we repented of false religion, of being a part of a worldly religion? That's something that those of us who didn't grow up in the church certainly have to repent of. Some teens grow up in the church, and they may see it as, well, I'm old enough, it's time for me to become a full member. I know I'll be baptized someday, and... Well, now's the right time. I've turned 18 or 19, so now I'm, I'm ready. But is this what it's all about? I'd like to quote from uh, Mr. Maris booklet on uh, Christian baptism. This is not the one with, uh, with Josh and, and Mr. Amon on it. Uh, but anyway, it's, it's basically the same. It's the one I had. But another booklet that's, that's good to review from time to time. And in it, Dr. Merrith wrote, you cannot just join the true church of God. Now, I heard that when I was a lot younger, and I never really understood what it meant. You can't join. What do you mean I can't join the church? I baptize, I'm in the church. Well, God must draw you or call you and then place you in his church by giving you his Holy Spirit. In other words, what makes you a member of the church is when God gives you his Holy Spirit, which takes place by the laying on of hands after baptism. And I think we know that. Remember how Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Through baptism and the receipt of God's Holy Spirit, you are automatically baptized into the true church of God. And then he quotes from 1 Corinthians 12, 13, where it says, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For God's church is composed of those people who are filled with and led by the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, 14. So, in a sense, a person says, okay, I'm going to join the church, I want to be baptized. But we have to understand that we would not come to that conclusion unless God drew us to that point. God must grant us repentance. And then upon repentance and accepting Christ as our Savior, and a few other things that we, we look at there, believing in the gospel, knowing what the gospel is and so forth, when we're baptized and have hands laid on us, that's when God puts us into his church. We don't just say, okay, I'm going to join the church, so put me under the water. There's far more to it than just getting wet. So if it's not to join the church, then why baptism? Well, again, quoting from Dr. Meredith at the beginning of his booklet on Christian baptism, its real meaning, he starts out by telling a a very short story here. He says, the shoulders of the big man sitting across the table began to shake and heave. Quote, I've broken every single one of God's commandments, he cried. I need to be baptized. This man, a World War II veteran and former Marine, was very deeply conscious that he was a sinner in need of salvation. 
As a young 22-year-old college student conducting a baptizing tour, I was deeply struck by this man's sincerity or this man's sincerely repentant attitude. He was coming to see himself, and he genuinely hated what he saw. He recognized his desperate need for a Savior. We are baptized because we need it. We're not baptized just to join something. We're baptized because we see that we desperately need it. In Acts, the second chapter, Acts, the second chapter, on the day of Pentecost, Peter was preaching a sermon after God had poured out the Holy Spirit upon those who were there. And then in verse 36, he, he finished the sermon with a statement. He says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, this is in verse 36, Acts 2.36, has made this Jesus whom, was, uh, went, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So not just any Jesus, but this Jesus, the one that you people who are there at the time crucified and killed. He's made him Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They saw that they were guilty of killing the Messiah. And in a real sense, you and I need to understand that we were the ones that killed the Messiah because it was through our sins that he had to die. We may not have been there shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. We may not have been the soldier who jammed the spear into his side. We may not have been the ones who nailed him to that stake or the one who, ones who were jeering him there, but we were every bit as guilty because we took sin lightly. We sinned time and again, and sometimes we still do through weakness, don't we? And we have to recognize he had to die for us as much as the others. But it says they were cut to the heart. Some of them knew that they had seen Jesus about them, performing miracles. Some of them may have been there shouting, crucify him. And they were cut to the heart. And they said, what in the world do we do? We killed the Messiah. We've been looking for the Messiah, and he came, and we killed him. And Peter said to them, repent, repent. Turn around, go another direction, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, to have your sins forgiven, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Romans, the sixth chapter, it tells us the meaning of baptism. I will forego that for now, for lack of time, but... You can read Romans, the sixth chapter, the first seven verses. But it is a burial service. It is putting the old person in the ground, actually in the water in this case. It is burying, it is killing the old man. And when we put you under, we put you all the way under. And we didn't leave a finger out, like one group of people who wanted to violate man's law. They left their trigger finger out. They felt like they could shoot a deer any time they wanted to. They left their trigger finger out. And they were pretty stubborn about it. 
Or what is it that you might have left out? I'll be buried except what? What might it be? That's a tough question to ask and, well, tougher to answer. All self-will, self-desire, and the ways of this world must be put aside. Mr. Herbert Armstrong wrote a booklet titled All About Water Baptism, and on page 22 he said this, There can be no set rule about the proper age for baptism. It is almost impossible to be absolutely sure, all caps, about young people under 21 or 25, and especially under 18. And unless positively sure that such one has really repented of self-will, such a one should be encouraged to live according to God's word, but refrain from baptism until sure. John the Baptist insisted on candidates bringing forth fruits meet for repentance, or in other words, evidence of repentance, or proving their repentance by the fruits in their lives. He went on to say, youngsters, I don't know the young people like to be called youngsters, but that's what he wrote. It says, youngsters should let a few years of such fruits prove their repentance and permanent sincerity and earnestness. Their permanent sincerity. Because uh, scientists now tell us that a person's brain doesn't fully mature until somewhere around 25, and you begin to wonder even after that in some cases. Uh, you know, a person can be sincere at a certain age, be truthfully sincere, but may not have experienced everything, especially if you're still living at home. Sometimes you, you haven't been out there and, and had some of the, the world thrown at you, not that you, you want to be out there and have the world thrown at you, but they just may not fully understand. They should prove their repentance and permanent sincerity and earnestness. Adults should be baptized immediately or as soon as possible on real repentance and faith. Now, we've seen in more recent years, the last decade or decade and a half, where, where people have all these, these uh, rules about how they're going to be baptized. They, they decide, well, I don't want to be baptized in that stock tank. I want to be baptized in running water. I haven't run too many of these, but some want to be baptized in the Jordan River, not realizing that all of that evaporates up in the air, and whatever John was uh, baptizing, that we may have as much here as it's over there. Uh, but they, they have these sentimental things. And, you know, if you're truly repentant, you don't care where it is. You know, it's what it pictures. It's not a memorable moment in the sense of the scene and everything like that. It's not postponing until everything is just right. We want to get baptized now. Like the man who was there talking to Dr. Merrith when he was, Dr. Merrith was a young man. You want to get your sins passed over, forgiven, washed. But, uh, Washed in the blood of Christ in reality. There are far more, there is far more on this subject than I've covered today and that I have time to cover. But I encourage you to read, study, and meditate on this subject by reviewing the, the booklets that I've mentioned here Real God, uh, The Bible Factor Fiction, Christian Baptism, as just three booklets. But I encourage you to read them, to study them, to think about them. Christian baptism, its real meaning, very important 
for anyone contemplating baptism and good booklet for us to be reminded of as we come up on Passover. Know why you want to be baptized and know why you were baptized.